This year is brought to you by TorahWeb.org. Thank you very much, Rabbi Neuberger, Rav Neuberger, Rav Kohn. Thank you very much to TorahWeb. This is my first uh, TorahWeb event. I've uh, recently been added to the, to the roster. And one of the great perks is now I get to text message Rav Neuberger all the time, which is a really cool thing. Uh, I'm a little starstruck. But... Uh, the, uh, it's always a great pleasure to be here with you in, uh, in Beth Abraham. It's always a great pleasure to be, and a little bit frightening to be, in the presence of uh, Moreno of Neuberger Shlita. Uh, the topic uh, makes it even a little bit more scary, because the topic was something, I, I forgot the exact title, but something along the lines of how we are failing our children. So one of my children insisted on coming because he was very curious <laughs> about what I had to say. He thought he'd be exhibit A in terms of how we are failing our children. My wife told me beforehand, just make it very clear that you are the one who has been failing our children and not their mother. So that is, uh, that I said, it's in the script already. I can show it to you. That is, uh, that, that is clear. Now, in general, I don't like to focus on the negative. I don't think it's generally super productive to focus on the negative. There are so many good things that we do as individuals, as a community, as parents, as uh, family members and friends, that it seems... Uh, unnecessary to focus on, on the negative. I remember at my uh, oldest son's bar mitzvah, at Yonah's bar mitzvah, uh, Yonah made a siyum on Shisha Sidre Mishnah. I'm not selling him anymore already, but he, he, made, a, he made a siyum on uh, Shisha Sidre Mishnah at his, uh, at his bar mitzvah, and uh, Morena of Shechter was there, and we asked him to speak, and he spoke for about two and a half minutes. And what Rav Shechter said was that he remembers when he became a bar mitzvah, that all you had to do as a bar mitzvah boy was say a pshetel in Yiddish, memorize it, just memorize your pshetel in Yiddish, and if you could do that, you were a star, then you were, you were great. And he said it was just so wonderful to see a generation of bar mitzvah boys that are learning and finishing things, learning mesechtas of Mishnayis and sedarim of Mishnayis and uh, mesechtas of Gemara, and he said it's really achshar dara that the generation has become greater as, you know, as if all of my children are going to be greater than Rosh but but he said that, that, that it's su- such a wonderful thing to see this uh, this 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 uh, advancement in uh, the hasados of what we have in the goals that we have for for our children, and that that is in fact great. And that was Rosh whole speech. He cried a little bit, and that and that was it. And everyone said to me, "That was a great speech." I mean, not only was it three minutes, it was poignant, it was powerful, it was impactful, and it was it was all of those things. So let's maybe reframe the topic. It's not about where we, let's not use the word, are failing our children, but about what potential uh, pitfalls our generation needs to be wary of when educating our children. And as with everything, when it comes to Chinuch, it's really about us, it's not about our children, because the way we educate is by modeling, and if we model correctly, then uh, then, then the children will pick up on the messages. Uh, Rav Neuberger and, and I split up the elements that need Chinuch, and Rav Neuberger suggested that I speak about three topics, if I recall correctly. I didn't have a pen on me at the time, so if I recall correctly, Rav Neuberger suggested that I speak about uh, materialism, uh, secular college, and the dearth of people pursuing careers in Chinuch and Rabbanus. Is that right? I also didn't have a pen. What? I also didn't have a pen. <laughs> <Okay>. so, <laughs> 
So, uh, in my in my opinion, those uh, those three are shlosha shehein achas because it really all goes back to uh, to that first topic of a sense of our relationship uh, with material wealth, our relationship with money, our concern about money, and I think that leads right into the other two topics: the topic of secular college and the terrible fear that people have that their children might pursue the terrible profession of being a rebbe, a teacher, a rabbi, a mechanech, a leader of a community. Now, people aren't discouraging of chinuch because they think the world just desperately needs more hedge fund managers. The reason they're discouraging of chinuch is because they're afraid that their kids aren't going to be able to eat. They're not going to be able to make a living. So it all goes back, I think, to that first issue of materialism. You know, we once had a scholar in residence in our shul who said that, uh, he said, I can share with you a Dvar Torah on the parsha, and if it really hits, then you may think of it once a year when we lane that parsha. He said, or I can share with you a Dvar Torah on tefillah, and something that you say each and every day. And if it really hits, then you'll think of it each and every day. I happen to not remember what the Dvar Torah was, but it was a good line, right? That uh, that if you share a Dvar Torah and tefillah, that so uh, that maybe that will uh, that 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 gives more opportunity to think about it. So allow me to share with you a Dvar Torah and tefillah that I think it's not really on tefillah, but uh, it's on something that we say each and every day, and I think that that will uh, help frame our topic in the Az Yashir that we say every day. We say Sus Barachvo Rama Bayam, and Rashi says Shnei. That the sus, the horse, virochvo, and the rider of the horse were, were attached to each other. They were connected to each other. And the water shook them up and moved them up, up and down and all over the place until they all sunk to the bottom of the sea. And the question is, why is that significant? Does it really matter to us whether the horse and the rider drowned separately or whether the horse and the rider drowned together. And even more pointedly, you know, Miriam gets one pasuk. She, she has to say a shira, she just gets this one line shira. So you imagine she's going to take the whole shira, she's going to find the point that is most important or that is most critical from the entire shira that, that Klal Yisrael is saying, and that's going to be the point she focuses on. And what's the point that she focuses on? Shira la Hashem ki go sus that, that's the point that you need to focus on? Again, about sus v'rachva with the horseman and the, 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 the horse? Who cares so much about the horseman and the horse? Why does that matter so much? Why is that the one point that she's going to zone in on? And a final question. The introduction to, uh, shira, to, to the shira is, uh, is, is, is a, a word that tells us, that's a reflection of the importance of the timing of it. We didn't just sing, but we sang us, specifically at that point in history. Now there are many highlights in the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, from each of the Makos to the moment that we were released, to the moment of Kabbalah Satora, to the moment of entering Eretz Yisrael. Why was Shira, and specifically that Shira, something that had to happen us, only at that point of the development of the nation after Kriyas Yamsuf? 
The Gemara Maseches Brachos and Daftes tells us that the Jewish people had to be encouraged to seek the Bizas Mitzrayim and to take the money uh, during Makas Choshech. And the Gemara says Hashem insisted on this because Shalom Yomar Tzadik, he does not want to have to deal with a difficult conversation with Avram Avinu where he's going to come and he's going to say that you fulfilled the uh, promise that the Jewish people are going to be slaves and they're going to be persecuted, but God, you never fulfilled that promise that they're going to go out with great wealth. As if to say that Avram Avinu is not going to understand the real meaning of Ruchush Gadol. Meaning, what is a Ruchush Gadol in the eyes of Avram Avinu? What is great wealth in the eyes of Avram Avinu? Does Avram Avinu, you know, someone was once describing to me, you know what wealthy means? Wealthy means that you have X number of million dollars in the bank. I don't remember the exact number. It was a lot more than I have, but it was X, X number of million dollars in the bank, plus you earn X number of dollars a year, and uh, that's the definition of wealth. Like there's a, a specific number that, that, that defines wealth. In, in Avram Avinu's eyes, that defines wealth. You know, they say the Chavetz Chaim used to have an expression about things that he couldn't do. If someone would ask him to do something, he was just too old, he was just too weak, he was too shvach, he couldn't do it. When they asked him to come to the Knesset Gedola and he was already in his 90s, and he said, I'm just too weak, I can't do it, I can't come. And they said, but you need to come, the world needs your chizik. He said, if you gave me a million mitzvahs, I couldn't come. And that was his expression. You gave me a million mitzvahs, I couldn't come. Because that, that's ruchush, that's wealth. It's not about a million dollars, it's a million mitzvahs. I wouldn't be able to come. Was Avram Avinu less than the Chavetz Chaim? He didn't understand that ruchush means a million mitzvahs and not a million dollars? You know, it's natural for young people to overvalue money and things. But when a person grows more mature, the hope is that they begin to see what true ruchush really is. I've heard of an extremely wealthy from philanthropist say that, you know, he grew up, he said, I grew up very, very wealthy. I grew up very, very rich. He said, my parents didn't have any money, but we had a loving home and a Torah environment. And we felt very rich for that. And that's the true definition of wealth. The reality for most of us is that it takes time to develop the maturity to appreciate that which is truly valuable in life. Now they say the Berich Moshe, the nephew and one of the successors of the Satmar Rebbe, points out that the Medrash and Shira Shirim writes that Bizas Mitzrayim and Bizas Ayam are the two times that we had this major financial boon in our history. And the Pasuk in Shira Shirim uh, says that Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza, which means that you've drawn me close, so I run after you, eager to connect to Hashem. That Hashem draws us close, and because He draws us close, we want to connect even closer. We want to run after to the Ribbonu Shlolem. But the Medrash Tarshan's the Pasuk to be connected to the Pasuk about Bizas Mitzrayim. Vishala Isha Mishchenta. We got our wealth from our neighbor, indicating that Hashem drew us close. How? By rewarding us with this incredible wealth. Now, why would the Medrash connect this idea of wanting to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the idea that we got money from Mitzrayim, that we were able to receive a, a tremendous amount of wealth. And the Berich Moshe explains that people often desire wealth, and they desire things that are somewhat empty. So Hashem gave us Bizas Mitzrayim, Bizas Yam, to say, you know what, whatever it is that you desire, I'm willing to give it to you. 
I'm willing to share with you. I'm willing to, to be giving. I'm willing to give you those things that you ask me for. And we learned the midah of desire in Mitzrayim. And now, we use that midah of desire to draw close to Hashem. Meaning that same desire that we once had for money, as we mature, we realize that there's a higher purpose, that there's a higher goal in life, that there's something else that we're interested in. And, and it's similar to how the, the, the Ramam describes the concept of uh, the rewards that the Torah tells us we receive for doing mitzvos. You know, the Torah tells us you do mitzvos and your field is going to yield a wonderful crop this year. It's very nice, but is that really the reward for doing mitzvos? Not a word in the Torah about Olam Haba, right, when we, when we do mitzvos. And, and, and the, the explanation is that, you know, when a child learns the Aleph base and he does a good job, you give him a lollipop. So what? The child believes at that uh, stage that the lollipop is the reason that he's doing the Aleph base, that he's learning the Aleph base. But as an adult, do we, do we believe that the reason it's worthwhile for him to learn the Aleph base is so that he can get a little bit of a sugar eye? No, we know that at his level, at that age, that's what he understands. And then he's going to become a teenager and you have to buy him a gadget to, uh, you know, to, to, to finish the Masechta or whatever it is, whatever his goals are. And then he's going to get a little bit older and you're going to have to give him money or you're going to have to give him a little bit older, you give him kavod. But ultimately, a person matures to the point where they appreciate, hopefully, the inherent value of those things that are worth doing. And maybe that helps answer the questions that we began with. The people were riding on these horses that were laden with ornaments made of precious metals and gems. And since those ornaments aren't used l'tzorech kavoa, ultimately they bring a person down. You know, Klal Yisrael, uh, statistically, we, we've, we, we are right now a very wealthy nation. Certainly the Jewish people here in America, but really the world over. You look at the statistics of the percentage of billionaires in the world that happen to be Jewish, it's astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Meaning uh, that we make up less than 2% of this country, we make up more than one-third of the billionaires in this country. By we, I don't mean me personally, but we, we make up more than one-third third of the billionaires in this country. And the same is true of, of, of the hundred millionaires and the ten millionaires, meaning all of those uh, levels of wealth. We, we are astonishingly wealthy. But the question is, what is it for? What do we use it for? And if you hitch yourself to that wagon of wealth, and it's not used, it brings a person's downfall. And we saw what the result of an unhealthy relationship with Kashmir looks like. And that was our moment of, trans, uh, of, of, of transition our moment of maturation when we see a Kriyas Yamsuf the, the Sus Verachvo we see the, the, the rider of the horse attaching himself, connecting himself to the horse and as the horse goes down so goes the rider and now we see that there's a higher goal and Miriam thought that that was worthwhile to emphasize because often women are also very inclined to, to appreciate beautiful things and perhaps are even more at risk into falling into such a trap and Miriam emphasized the proper attitude toward Gashmias. And apparently her Shira made an impact. Because when called upon to contribute jewelry to the Egel Azov in yesterday's parasha, the women refuse to comply. Because, yes, we have jewelry, but that's not why we have jewelry. It's, it's meant to be used for something much bigger. The, 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 the centerpiece of Az Yashir was the phrase, Zekeli van Veil. And that's the phrase upon which Chazal comment that we were zocha to the highest levels of revelation. Rasa Shivchalayam Mashalorau Hanavim Binuvasa. 
But perhaps the message of that Pasuk could have only been delivered at that moment. When we saw not just the Egyptians had perished, they, had they never appeared, we would have assumed that they had died. But we saw how they had perished. Attached to their precious horses, their horses that were laden with gems. Oz, that's when Yashir Moshe, we were able to sing about our special relationship with Hashem. We were able to say, We were able to point to a recognition of Hashem. Chazal specifically derived the concept of Hidr Mitzvah from that Pasuk, to demonstrate that, that it was at that point in history that we discovered what the proper use of all that Gashmius was. It's Hisna'el, the fun of B'mitzvos. It's to serve Hashem better. It's to serve Hashem in a more beautiful way. The Egyptians enjoyed plenty of material wealth, and they lived and died with that wealth. Their materialism was attached to the horses upon which their dead bodies were draped. We saw that, and we realized that wealth has a higher purpose. Hisna'el, the fun of B'mitzvos. We could draw closer to Hashem with it. You know, that's the time of Avram Avinu. Had we not been able to leave with Ruchush Gadol, Avram Avinu would have a taina. Kitzur Shulchanach writes in his Sefer on Chumash, I forgot what it's called, but he has a Sefer on Chumash, and he writes in his Sefer on Chumash that at that point in our development, as we were leaving with Shrayim, we didn't yet know how to dream big. We weren't yet on a level to appreciate a spiritual Ruchush. So Hashem was telling, Avram Avinu was telling Hashem, or would have told Hashem, you didn't fulfill it for them. I know what a Ruchush Gadol really is, but for them, where they are right now, you didn't fulfill it. And that was something that they would learn later at Kriyas Yamsuf, exactly what a real Ruchush Gadol, in fact, in fact is. And I think that attitude that one has toward material wealth and toward, toward material things is, is something that so shapes our, our worldview, and it so shapes so much of what happens in our communities. You know, it's, it's often worthwhile to reassess our relationship to Gashmi's. A lot of us, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe went on vacations, which perhaps were very beautiful. And we should ask ourselves, what was beautiful about it? Was it how luxurious the accommodations were? Or was it the fact that we get, were able to spend time with family? And if we're mature enough to answer that question properly, can our children answer that question properly? Do they have the maturity? When their conversations happen in school, in the aftermath of vacation, what do those conversations sound like? Oh, you should have seen the hotel we were at. It was so cool. It was so sick. This, is that the conversation? Or is the conversation really, I got to spend such great quality time with my mom and dad. I mean, that kid would be a nerd. He'd get beaten up. But still, <laughs> even if he's not, not going to say it. But is that, is, that what he, is that what he feels? Is that what he feels? Is that what he thinks? Have we helped our children develop that maturity to answer that question? Or have we crippled them with high expectations? I, I, I once heard... David Lichtenstein told the story of a friend of his who normally flies on private planes. You know, even just that. <laughs> if, if, if we were in this room 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I have to ask, how many of you know somebody who's flown private? Probably nobody would raise their hand. I would bet there's nobody that doesn't raise their hand right now. It's like such a different world that we're living in. So David said that he had a friend who normally flies private. And one time his jet was unavailable. Nebuch. 
He had to, he had to fly first class on a commercial airline, like an animal. And, and, and his young child was sitting in this large first class seat. And he saw people boarding the plane. And the kid turned to his father and he said, Daddy, what are all these people doing on our plane? What kind of expectation does one grow up with when, when, that's, when that's how you grow up? If we truly value that which is valuable, why is there such a need to post vacation pictures online for everybody to see? When, when we speak about other people and the things that we admire about other people, do we say, oh, they're so great because they, they were able to go to this exotic location on, on vacation? We don't, we don't admire that about other people. It's, it's, if that's ever said, it's always at least with a tinge of jealousy or with, oh, we should try to do that next year. A tinge of keeping up or of jealousy. So if that's not something we admire about other people, why would we think that that's worthwhile to post for other people to see? Meaning it could be that, you know, where our family is at and what we're doing, that that's what we do. But, but publicizing such a thing? Is that, so, you know what we should publicize? We should publicize things that are inspiring. We should publicize things that we find inspiring about other people. And that will resonate with people a lot more. It will also be a tremendous statement about the things that we value. And I think this leads right into the issue of secular college. You know, this challenge is largely connected to our, our, our aspirations in the material world. If our aspirations are primarily in the realm of material success, we'll want to give our kids the best chance at that material success, even at the risk of sacrificing significant spirituality. Now, I was once talking to Professor Mark Shapiro, and he told me that he thinks secular colleges get a bad rap. He said, the kids, of course there are kids that throw away religion, but those are the kids, he said, on the first day, I can tell you they're going to throw away religion. It's not secular college that does it to them. They come in, they've already decided that they had enough of it. And they come in, and that's, that's the way, you, I could tell you on the first day who's going to stay religiously strong and who won't. And I partially agree with him. Because the kind of family that makes a high-ranking secular college a point of aspiration is likely not the kind of family that will see success in learning or in serious avodas Hashem as being far superior to a value to the child's secular education. And if you grow up in such an environment, it's no wonder that he's ready to throw away 12 years of very expensive yeshiva education in order to pursue a higher goal. Where I disagree with Professor Shapiro is in the degree to which a person is willing to throw things away. The boy that comes into his freshman year ready to give up on Minion may soon find that he thought he was ready to give up on Minion. Now he discovered he's ready to give up on Tefillin also. If he came in thinking, you know, I would date a girl who's not as religious as me, he may soon find that, you know, I would date a girl who's not Jewish. The pull of the environment is so significant. Kids in the 18 to 23 age group are changing so rapidly. I once spoke to a mechanic who's also in Rabbanus, and I asked him, you know, which do you, do you enjoy more, the chinuch or the Rabbanus? And this fellow told me, I am, to, I am to enjoy both very much, I'm sure you do also, but this fellow told me, by far chinuch is much better than Rabbanus. Because adults are adults, they are who they are, and they're not interested in changing, and they're set in their ways. Said, but kids, like, they, you have no idea who they're going to be. They have no idea who they're going to be. They don't know who they're going to be tomorrow. It's so rapidly changing. And, and to put someone in that environment, why? Why? And at what cost are we willing to put them in that kind of environment? 
And I think this, this speaks right into the conversation about uh, Clay Kodesh and about the desperate need, and I tell you it is a desperate need, that yeshivas and shuls now throughout the country have for proper leadership, for capable people to teach and to lead. <clears throat> I've spoken about this in this very shul before. We cannot be afraid of our children wanting to be rabbis and teachers. I always think of the obvious pride and joy Rabbi Yudin has when he tells me how many of his children have entered the family business. It's a source of pride. It's not a source of being nervous. Oh no, what are they going to eat? And allow me to share with you some of the points I made to the young men in YU just before the Chag HaSmicha this year. I told them they, they should consider a few things that maybe they haven't thought about. When you go into Klei Kodesh, ultimately what everyone wants is the same thing. Everyone wants happiness. Everyone wants to live a happy life. Everyone wants to feel a sense of fulfillment, to feel, to, to feel like we're accomplishing something. When you go into Klei Kodesh, who do you spend your day with? True story, just a couple of days ago, I was walking down the hall in yeshiva, I uh, went to make a coffee in the, or to get some copies or something from, the, uh, from, from the, the Rebbe's lounge in yeshiva, and Rav Neuberger is sitting right there. How many of you get to experience that? That you walk around the building and you see Rav Shachter? That, I, I realize not everybody works in YU, but still, the kinds of people... That, you're, that you encounter on a daily basis? Are you navigating halachic minefields all day? Or are you collaborating with great mechanchem and people who work for the cloud? Being home for dinner. Spending summers with children. When my kids were young, I was able to spend every summer with them. I still spend every summer with them pretty much. I was always home for, I was always out after dinner time, but always home for dinner time when they were young. No longer the case. I remember one Rav telling me about how he would spend all summer going on trips with his father. His father was also a Rav, and they had no money. He couldn't send him to camp. And the level of nostalgia and connectedness he had, not easy to find. But it's unlikely that you're going to find it in Puerto Rico or the Bahamas. Being connected to your rebellion, an excuse to connect when you have chinuch questions and shilos and eitzah. You know, people sometimes view me as being a close Talmud of my Rebbe, Rav Shechter Shlita, I'm still terrified to talk to him, but it's part of my job, so it's amazing. There is a great, great need for this. There's a great, great need in, in Klal Yisrael. And let's think a little bit to the future. What's going to happen in 10 years from now when there aren't enough qualified mechanism from our own community teaching our children? So we're going to call up the schools and we're going to say, why are you shipping people in from Lakewood to teach our kids? Those aren't the same values that we have. And you know what? Halavai, we should be able to ship in people from Lakewood. Because guess what? The people in Lakewood discovered that you could sell things on Amazon and make three times the amount of money. And they also have a chinuch shortage in Lakewood. We're not going to be able to just draw from other communities as easily. And very often, the hesitation is that a child thinks, you know, am I good enough? Will I be able to make it? And I would suggest that we should encourage them that they are good enough. We should give them confidence. I saw someone just told me the stat that of the top 20 hedge funds in the United States, uh, 18 of them are run by Jewish people. 
So there's a good chance we'd be successful if, uh, you know, if he goes into some other field. Jews tend to be successful. But I heard that of the top 20 Gedolei Yisrael, all 20 are Jewish. <laughs> we're, we're primed for success in this area as well. And I have to tell you, I stand in awe of so many people that I know, so many of my friends, people in my shul and my chaverim, who dedicate serious time to learn and to grow in Yiddishkeit when they don't spend all day in, in, in Kedusha. Or they don't spend all day in obvious Kedusha. It's not easy. I told the young men, when you work in Chinuch or Rabbanus or Kiruv, the natural inclination is to grow. You have to practice what you preach. It's part of your job and inspire yourself in order to inspire others. That's the minimum requirement of the job. So I think that our attitude toward material success, our attitude toward material wealth, shapes so much of the way, our, the way that our community operates. It shapes so much of the way we view so many other decisions in life. And sometimes it's difficult to take that out of the equation when making decisions to take it out of the equation when making value judgments. You know, there's a good conversation to be had about how we spend our money and the effect that it has not only on our families but on the people around us. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, one of our Rosh Yeshiva, has been talking about this a lot and he's fighting the good fight. I would suggest something much more modest than what he suggests, which is not to go on Pesach programs and to stop buying nice stuff. But I, I would suggest something much more modest. Let's watch the way we talk about physical and spiritual pleasures, respectively. How is it that a phrase like, I really need a drink, not Coca-Cola, I really need a drink has crept into the lexicon of the from community. It's the way we speak. I could really use a drink. I really need a drink. When was the last time we said, I really need an hour to sit with a Gemara? You may enjoy a drink. But what, what kind of message does that send to those around us and certainly to our children when those are the words that we hear? I remember I was once, I took my children to uh, Dunkin' Donuts. There's Dunkin' Donuts right next to the barbers. So I used to bribe them when they were young that you go get a haircut, we'll go for donuts afterwards. That was, the, uh, that was the deal. And there was a fellow in front of us in line and he got to the front of the line and said, yeah, I need uh, two of those donuts. And I couldn't help myself. I said, you know, looks can be deceiving, but one look at this man will tell you the last thing he needs <laughs> is two of those donuts. How do we speak about things that we need and things that we would like? To honor Torah more than we honor money. You know, if Papa had ten sons who were Tamid Chum, we talk about them at every seum. And Rav Eliyashev explains in his uh, Shiurim, that the reason that he was Zohar to have ten sons who were Tamid Chachamim is not because he was a Tamid Chachamim. There are very often many Tamid Chachamim that don't have children who are Tamid Chachamim. But Rav Yashif points out that if you look throughout Shas, Rav Papa is always the one that when there's a machlokas between two different people, Rav Papa, is the way to, Rav Papa always shows up and says, well, in this circumstance that one is right, and in this circumstance that one is right. So they're both really right. Look at the cover Tamid Chachamim that he had. And when children grow up in a house where Tamidi Chachamim are, are, are respected, where Torah accomplishments are celebrated, you know, there's an importance that we, we sometimes overlook of, of creating a moment 
you know, I'm not I'm not big into making siyumim. I, I don't I, I don't think I've ever seen my Rabbi Rav Shachta make a siyum. But there's a reason why there's a concept of a siyum. <coughs> you know, Rav Asher Weiss, when he finishes the seder of of of, of Gemara, Bavli or Shalmi, he'll make a siyum around the table, and he said it, it made an impact on his family. It made an impact on his children. When his wife was ill, I remember he was staying in Lawrence one Shabbos, and uh, he asked he asked to get a minion together on Friday night. And they got a minion together, and he made a siyum on Seder Nashim Talmud Bavli, for his wife. Then Shabbos day at the Suda Shabbos, he said, get a minion together. And they got a minion together again, and he made a siyum on Seder Nashim Talmud Yerushalmi, for his wife. The impression that that, he didn't finish it in between. I mean, it was an ongoing project, but the impression that that made on everybody that was there. Celebrate Torah accomplishments. Another bit of advice I mentioned before, don't post about yourself and your trips on social media. It's obvious to us that we don't use social media the way the world around us uses social media, if we use it at all. But it's obvious to us we don't use it to complain about the airline that I was on or to complain about this one or to bash that organization or that... But don't even use it to promote yourself or to promote the things that you've done. Use it as a vehicle for inspiration and for useful information. And when, when these are the subtle messages, because the subtle messages are the ones that are heard, that resound, that are heard loud and clear. When these are the subtle messages, then the, the overt messages, the clear messages, that which we actually say, will not fall on deaf ears will be heard by people who see, by children who see, and by those around us who see that we express those values, that we express the values of caring about Klal Yisrael. Let our children see when we used to be writing checks, I guess we don't write checks anymore, when you, when you go on your Fidelity account and send money you know, to Tzedakah. Let, let, them, let them see. Let them see that we're spending money on those kinds of things. Let them see the values of friendship and how we're there for our friends, how we're there for our community. Let them see those values that we, that we really represent and what's truly important in life. And when they see that, they will absolutely pick up on that. And we will have enough doctors and lawyers and hedge fund managers and Rubayim and Rashi Yeshiva and people to inspire our communities, people to inspire our families, people to inspire each other and to lift each other up.